Uh, we are in the book of Esther for uh, a second Sunday in a row. We have three uh, more today and two more, Lord willing. Uh, I want to read the whole thing, not today, but in uh, a period of four weeks. Esther chapter 2, page 411. Uh, just a little bit on that page. If it's uh, one of the Bibles you're using there or your app, you can scroll through that quite easily. But uh, we'll be going all the way through a bit of page 413, a fair amount to cover uh, today in the story. But we are given a blessing in the New Testament, a couple different places that, uh, that we ought not to forsake the public reading of Scripture and though I can't possibly comment fully on all that I, is in my head and heart as I've studied uh, these two chapters in Esther, um, perhaps the Spirit of God will give you insight nonetheless, quite apart from me. And I trust that that is the case. But today we're going to look at a, a gentleman named Mordecai. Mordecai, besides having kind of an interesting name, uh, he has quite a story. And the title, I suppose, of the sermon is Seeing God in Your Circumstances. I... I don't like grammar. Uh, <laughs> I, I probably would rename it now. I don't really know. But I, I, not that your circumstances are God or that your circumstances guide you per se. But you, like, like they say in algebra, factor God into the equation. As if or assume or presume that he's there somewhere, somehow. And Mordecai is a great example of a man who factors God and treats the Lord, even though his name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, even the word God is not mentioned here, but Mordecai is a man who nonetheless believes all that he's read, that God is present, that he's paying attention, that he's a person we might think of, that he's not just an idea or factoid or some like deistic sort of force, but he's actually paying attention to you, uh, and he is the powerful one who can deliver you. So that's kind of what I mean by seeing God factoring him into the circumstances, the providential, and that word providential we hope to look at next week, that God is actually the one, silently perhaps, but nonetheless, deliberately, relentlessly controlling all things in a manner of his choosing. So, as we factor God into the equation, I want to ask about Mordecai, because Mordecai is an interesting fella, and this is a true story. I mean, it's a, it's a marvelous tale. It's a wonderfully written story. Uh, it's a rags the riches tale about a, a humble orphan who gets exalted all the way to be the queen of an empire, an empire that has something like 15,000 talents of GDP, like just a ton amount of money of silver in an annual period. And so it's an incredible position of, of uh, prominence and power. And it's a story about how she and her a little bit older cousin Mordecai are used by God to once again thwart an attempted genocide, a, a destruction, annihilation of his people, the Jews, a holocaust. So here we are, Esther chapter 2, verse 19. And as we go through this text, these two or three chapters, um, I'm going to say three or four times, why did Mordecai do that? Why did Mordecai say that? That's kind of the theme. If you have, some of you take notes, that might be little hinges or pegs on which to organize our thoughts today. Why did Mordecai do this certain thing? And of course, what I mean by that, and what can we learn from such a man 
who wisely factored the living God into his equations. Esther chapter 2 verse 19 is where we left off last Sunday. So if I may continue the story, it goes this way. Now, uh, when the virgins, now again, this is after Esther has actually, I guess you would say, won the prize, has become the queen of King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, some, uh, that's the Greek word for his name. Uh, this is the story now, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs were, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The first question is, why did Mordecai tell Esther about this plot against King Ahasuerus? Why did he do that? And, and the, 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 beneath the question, let me ask this too. Like, who is Mordecai anyways? So he's Esther's older cousin. He's the one when her parents both die. We don't know the story behind that, that tragedy. But he was the one who had the guts and was willing to pay the cost of raising um, sweet Esther in his house. And I can tell you, because you've probably read the story, we can skip to the back of this little book of Esther, chapter 10, to tell you who he becomes, or I guess who, what is revealed about this man. Um, sometimes when you read a novel, you, you skip to the back to make sure you're not going to cry, so you want to make sure the main character lives, right? <laughs> you might, the three of us do that. Uh, I, I Guilty. All right, anyways, uh, uh, I don't want to waste my time on a sad story if I'm reading for fun. Anyway, uh, Esther chapter 10, verse 3, uh, for Mordecai the Jew, it's interesting he's often referred to that way, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's the end of the book of Esther. It finishes with Mordecai, actually. Not so much Esther, but uh, Esther in connection to him. So that's what happens. That's who he's revealed to do or be and what happens. But here in chapter 2, where we just encountered him, that hasn't yet happened. Mordecai is not yet where he will be. Daniel was at the prime minister uh, position uh, during the king of uh, the empire of Babylon and other times too. Uh, here, Mordecai, we learn, also was lifted up to the one step beneath the king as prime minister. Uh, and uh, he will be there, but he's not there yet. He's just in the gate, which probably suggests that he's, I hate to say this, but a mid-level bureaucrat. You know that whole saying, I'm from the government, I'm here to help? That's him. <laughs> He's just a guy in the trenches uh, working out the king's decrees. It takes a lot of people, you know, to work out and implement the laws and the decisions that are made from the high person on high. And that's what Mordecai does. He's just, 
an average guy. And though Esther is nothing but average anymore, she was below average before as, a, uh, as an orphan, but he's just still stuck in mid-level management. But apparently Esther saw something in him or was at least grateful and, and, and thankful for what God had done and his great sacrifices in raising her. And she had a great affection for him and says there in our, in our text that still, though she is now queen way above rank and prominence and power than Mordecai, she still defers to Mordecai, speaking volumes of his character. He's a mid-level bureaucrat, but he happens to overhear this plot. And I asked the question, why does Mordecai tell Esther about the plot? Because I'm not so convinced that it's like an obvious no-brainer that he should just tell her. Uh, if you read the story of Daniel and other places, sometimes... The stinker on top gets set aside by God to bring a better guy, even a King Cyrus, who might be a better a position, a better person to advance the cause of righteousness. Maybe, and we've read from chapter 1 and 2 a little bit about King Ahasuerus, we might think it might not be too difficult to find a better man for that role. Why does Mordecai... You know, not kind of, I will say, second guess or try to peer into the inscrutable, mysterious plan of God and try to figure out what God's doing and sort of like act ahead of time and as though like, uh, you know, he could sort of scheme his way and his people's way to prominence and safety and power. Why does he not do that? He doesn't do it because his responsibility and ours is to just be faithful where God's put us. I like what Warren Wearsby said, and this is worth writing down because it's partly, it's only five words, but also because it's, it's dead on. Uh, Warren Wearsby said this, faith is living without scheming. Faith is living without scheming. Why did Mordecai tell Esther? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 18, Pastor Jonathan mentioned that book. It couldn't be more clear when God says this through Moses. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. God did not give permission to his ancient people to scheme their way into the land of promise. He said, you obey me and follow me where I take you. Do not scheme your way into places of power to try to get your way or to get wealth. Mordecai doesn't do that. There's another man actually in the story of Esther. He's the villain who schemes. That's the first thing to say, beloved. In Christ or as Christians, we're to follow Jesus and not scheming. We are to stand where he puts us, and we are to stand when he puts us there. In chapter 3, I'll read now the next paragraph to continue our story. Now, after these things, uh, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Hmm. Why did Mordecai not bow to Haman? That's there in verse 2, the second half of verse 2. It says so clearly, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Is this like some petty thing? Is it like, I don't know, like a mid-level bureaucrat kind of like frustrated that he got passed over for an important position? Is he like being a sore loser? I mean, is this like unrighteousness? Is this like the people going to get picked on, the Jews being picked on because of one, one man so full of himself, he just wouldn't take one for the team and bow? Well, it's kind of interesting. In a book that by God's hand through whatever human means is laid out in the scripture that never mentions God directly or the Lord directly, in a book that so clearly leaves something deliberately out, it was the first key thing I taught you last week. When you read Esther, pick up on this key in reading the scripture here that God has left out intentionally to make a point, right? To make the silence, I would say, screams. In a similar way where you might expect this to be, God to be mentioned over and over, something like a hundred plus times, it's not, he's not listed there, but there is something else listed, another word that's used way more than you would ever expect any writer in a little story like this to bring it up. And that's a strange word. It's five times it says in verse 1 that the, uh, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Now that's a very strange thing. And if you weren't a student of scripture, you would read it without thinking about it. Oh, they're introducing a character here. He's an Agagite. Except that four more times, he's referred to as Haman the Agagite. For effect. God wants that in there so that we can interpret carefully, understand what's going on here. It will explain in a little bit later in a fourth sermon on this text toward the end of the Esther, why in the world the Jews would be so almost vindictive toward Haman and those like him who were sworn against the Jews who were cursing themselves in that way. It's going to explain that thing that we as Westerners can't quite comprehend, or I would say right, actually the right way to saying is our righteousness is flawed. We pity the wrong parties. Haman is an Agagite. Now, if I pass out the quiz and see who figured out what an Agagite is, I imagine none of us would have would pass. I didn't pass, at least. Uh, that's okay. If you're like, what's, what's an Agagite? Am I supposed to know that? <laughs> but, but 
the effect of it is, let me just make this important point that at first you're like, ah, he's an Agagite. But later on it's like, you remember Haman, the Agagite? Remember Haman's an Agagite is the effect of reading that five times in the book of Esther and other scriptures, by the way, too, when you see these devices, they're not accidental. It was expensive to write these words of God down by hand. Trust that every word, every jot, every tittle was paid for by the blood of Christ, you might say, on purpose. We're to read carefully. He is a descendant of King Agag, that ancient enemy of Israel. Now let me tell you, rewind the tape and give you a little bit of the history. Over a thousand years of bad blood exists between the Agagites and the Jews. Uh, one of the first uh, mentions of them is in Exodus 17. In chapter 17, if you read verses 8 through 14, you'll you'll, it describes the people who King Agag come from, the Amalekites. Amalekites are a despicable people. Here's what they do. The Jewish people are by God's mighty hand, a miraculous hand. There's no miracles in Esther, at least not in the sort of from heaven divine like awesome power things. It's the miracle, maybe it's even a bigger miracle, that he's able to arrange through such sinful people a protection of his people. That's a miracle, by the way, a providential miracle, but it is a miracle. And uh, God has just done a mighty miracle. He has delivered these former slaves through the Red Sea. And he has wiped off the, off the planet the chariots of Pharaoh and his armies who have been after them. And the people of God, as you know, in those early chapters, as they're wandering into the wilderness, they are weary. Prone to wander, prone to complain and grumble. They're just tired out. And these despicable Amalekites, as the scriptures lay out, have a, a plan. They, it's a despicable and tactical move. They decide to preemptively attack these wandering people in the middle of the desert when they're exhausted and worn out by the journey. And they don't just attack them head on. They sneak around behind where the weakest are, the children, the infirm, the elderly, those who barely got through the Red Sea, and they begin to cut them down. The slower, the weaker. Joshua was sent into battle. I mean, this is even before Mount Sinai. They hadn't even really got organized yet. I don't know because they were slaves if they had anything more than sticks to go into battle with. But he's sent anyways into battle. And Moses, it's a very poignant moment. He's up on the hill. He's looking out over the battlefield. And Joshua with his guys trying to stop these thugs from, from slaying the children and the, the women and, and the elderly. And them too, the men too. And he's watching this on. And, and it's, it's, it's an incredible picture. And it's meant to signal something important to us. Which also applies to the book of Esther and to the rest of the, the scriptures. Both old and new. Moses is standing there. And remember what he's doing. He has his hands up. And do you remember, as long as he's praying and he's blessing God's people with his hands up, do you remember that the Israelites were winning? But, but as soon as his, and I sometimes like to, because the Psalms urge us to lay up our, push up our hands to give glory and praise to God. And I apparently am quite a weak man because I can hardly do it for one song before my arms can get tired. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, I wish I could hold my hands longer up to you, Jesus, but I am just so poor. And Moses, trying as hard as he could to grit it out, just couldn't hold his blessing any longer, and his hands fell. And remember what happened when they fell? The Amalekites would gain the upper hand. They would begin to kill 
Again, some more of the juice. So, Moses, he had two guys that helped him out. Remember their names? Aaron and Hur. One dude on this side, one on the other. And Moses being over 80 years old, they put a little rock under his bottom. He sits there with his hands up. It's a really innovative way of accomplishing God's victory. And you may think, what a bizarre story. The point of the story is what Paul knew very well and said more explicitly than I think anywhere else in the scripture, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. The Amalekites represent, because they were, the hand of Satan, the hand of Satan on the planet. Hmm. They were set against God's people. They hated, because of Yahweh, they hated them. There was this invisible war occurring in the heavenlies, and that's why Moses had to keep his hands up, and prayer was essential. And at the end of uh, uh, that chapter, I'm just, I know I'm making much about this, but it explains uh, Esther. In uh, Exodus 17, verse 14, and 15, and 16, it lays out the results of this victory. They were able to fight off or fend off the Amalekites. Now this is the word of the Lord. This is not Moses' idea. This isn't the group of Jews hanging on to a vendetta. Uh, you know, some sort of feud between peoples. This is the Lord's perspective on the Amalekites and King Agag and those like him. Then the Lord said to Moses... Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Maybe your translation says... Forever. There's an ancient war here between Amalek, the forces of darkness and of wickedness, and man and Israel, God's people on the planet, his representatives, and at the root of it is another being, what we call or who we understand to be Satan. Now, Agag is a king, and maybe Agag also is sort of like Pharaoh. It's like the title that was used for the king. Okay, like we say prime minister, but that's more of a person than like, you know, type. So maybe that's what it is. But King Agag is a pretty dastardly dude. We find him again in, uh, in the first Samuel 15. And there it is that Samuel the prophet comes to Saul, the first king. They're finally organized enough that they have a king. The Jews are. And the first mission that God gives his battle group, his organized forces, is I want you to wipe out the Amalekites and end this forever. Be done with them. Get them off the planet, please. And you might think, how could they say that? Well, if you read the Psalms, you'll learn that these people would dash infants against rocks. They would do other, I will just say, vile things against women and others. These are people that represent... The opposite of all that God stands for. That is life and human flourishing. Okay? And he wants that evil. He wants these thugs, this gang of thieves and of robbers and pillagers destroyed. And so he sends King Saul out. 
But Saul, the story goes, as it's laid out in Scripture, doesn't fully obey the Lord. He kills and defeats the Amalekites. He destroys a lot of their army. Many people are killed, but he keeps the best of the flocks, the best of the wealth, and he keeps alive the king Agag. And Agag is smug, thinking he's sneaked it out again. <laughs> when Samuel the prophet comes in and rebukes Saul, and he says, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear? Did not the Lord say to strike them off the planet and you did not obey him? You're pitying the wrong party here. Samuel, in a rather vivid description, hacks apart that smug Agag because he understood the message of the Lord and he did not maybe understand everything, but he knew what God wanted and he was going to obey him no matter what, trusting that God was right. I wish that Saul had done that because, at least I will say this way, King David wishes that Saul would have fully obeyed because the Amalekites, the people of Agag, King Agag, they're the very people who a few years later, when David was away with his mighty men, would raid and destroy Ziklag and kidnap his wives and children and do... God knows what... So this feud that Agag has with the Jews and the Jews with, with him, with them, is ancient. And it's spiritual. Why did Mordecai not bow down? It was not a petty act. In fact, I don't think Mordecai even, or I mean Haman even knew that Mordecai existed. He probably didn't even know anything about Mordecai. He's just some mid-level guy. He wouldn't have known anything about it except those busybodies. In our culture, the memes would call them Nancy, I think. <laughs> they say, hey, why aren't you, why are you not bowing down? And instead of leaving well enough alone, let's see what happens, they decide to bring it to Haman, who then pays attention and then reveals, I think in part, why Mordecai knew not to bow down to such a wicked man, such a villain, because not just, you know, taking Mordecai out of the equation, Haman goes to the nth degree and decides, hey, you know what? Let's obliterate any and all who are related to Mordecai. And so he decides to eradicate God's people, his representatives from off the planet, which brings us then to chapter 3, verse 7. Now in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they, that's uh, Haman and his minions, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of, other, of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business." 
that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people also do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly, hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now why, third question, why did Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes? Why did he do this? What's going on? Why this public display, this loud wailing? That's described there in verse 1. Well, in the ancient Near East, it was their custom that they would grieve in this way, this oriental way. We don't do that now. But they would become, make themselves very, very flagrantly uncomfortable, I guess. Sackcloth is a very rough material. And they would put ashes on their head. It was a symbol of great sorrow, of great lament. And uh, why did he do that? Why did the Jews join him in that? I, I think there's probably things we don't quite understand that translate well to our non-Middle Eastern culture, I'll say this. There's things we're missing, but I'll, at least we, even in the West, can observe three effects of them doing this. The first is this, that when Mordecai did this, this removed absolutely any doubt who a Jew was. And it says here that a lot of the other Jews all throughout the empire reacted in the same way. Now, excuse me, but when you have a target suddenly put on your, your back, if you're this people, wouldn't that be the right time now to hide? <laughs> wouldn't now be the time to like, oh, I'm a good empire citizen. Pretend as though you're not actually a Christian, not actually a Jew. But instead, God's faithful people respond with great grief. And I think they're, well, very much like what Daniel did. Remember when the king said it's illegal to pray. Remember that to anyone but in a certain way and to me? What did Daniel do? He normally prayed in privately, but when that edict was, 
was uh, laid out, he then flung wide his doors and windows so that people would know he was praying at the right time as a Jew should, right? So there is a time, a place to hide. It is not always a sin to hide, but it is a sin to always stay hidden, especially when the Lord demands our first allegiance. So what it does is it removes any doubts to the people who are out for their stuff, really, and out for just have this animosity, this anti-Semitism, which unfortunately continues to this very day, millennia. Our world has wrestled with this reality, unfortunately. And it is also by doing this, when Mordecai does this, he's clearly demonstrating that his hope of salvation is not an alternate scheme. It's not that he's going to trust in weapons or other power sources or wealth or anything like that. His hope is in the Lord. He believes, though again, this is not laid out explicitly in Esther, but based on his actions, he is a kind of Jew who would believe Psalm 46 verse 1. Where it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Isn't it, in some ways, more incredible that he, that he acts this way in the face of such opposition? When God is so silent, he seems so impotent in the face of this guy, as villain. And also this public act, this display of, of repentance and, and, and lament certainly gets Esther's attention. Maybe she got distracted by the affairs of the court. Maybe as it's laid out in Esther, it seems like she was kind of in a, in a cloistered environment amongst the women. And uh, so she may not have known all that was going on. But she hears through the grapevine, through some of the eunuchs, that Mordecai has done this incredible uh, vivid and public thing that shows more than personal sorrow. It shows that some public calamity if, of, I would guess, say, uh, genocidal proportions is occurring. One last text to read. Let's finish off chapter 4. Two paragraphs. Thank you for hanging in there. In uh, verse 4, we read this. And this is now describing the dialogue between Mordecai and his younger cousin Esther, the queen. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was that Mordecai was doing this, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to put into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. By the way, uh, when the king says, oh, don't worry about that money, that's like oriental politeness. Almost certainly Mordecai was planning to give a huge treasure, a huge treasure to the king. And uh, by the way, where did he get that money? It probably wasn't his money. He was, this is a massive fortune. Two-thirds of the annual GDP of the entire empire is what, what he promised, 10,000 talents. So he probably was thinking, the Jews are, are ripe for the picking. I'll take all their stuff and give half of it to the empire and pocket half of it myself, right? Okay, that's kind of what's going on. That's kind of behind the scenes. You might not know that if you didn't know some of the oriental ways. So anyways, verse 8 Mordecai also gave him a copy, that is, give the eunuch, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction. 
and that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold up fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast also as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. There's the final sentence I want you to pay attention to. It's verse 14. Uh, if you keep silent at this time, your father's house will perish. Oh, I skipped the line. Excuse me, I skipped the line. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your, your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time. As this. The question is this why did Mordecai expect relief and deliverance to come one way or another? Because he knew that the Bible that describes the real God described a God of such righteousness, such perfection, such, such steadfast love, and permanent affection for those who will cry out to him that he will never leave them nor forsake them. Never, ever leave them nor forsake them. He knew that there was this covenant that God had, had deliberately on his own, uh, on his own initiative made with the ancient forefather of the Jews, a man named Abraham, that he had said to Abraham that I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, Abraham, and I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, which explains what happened to Haman and his crew. And in you, says God to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, which was partly affected by the exile because the Jews are now dispersed in every major city already before the coming of the Messiah and the new covenant that then would explode upon this planet, the offer to Jew and Gentile of salvation in Christ. And God goes on to say to Abraham some months or years later, he says in Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Why did Mordecai expect relief? Because of God. He actually factored into the equations of the situation, the circumstances he was in, that there was still, though he was silent, a God who's paying attention is powerful, 
and is personally involved. And he said, because of who he is, I know that one way or another, God's people will never be eradicated from this planet. And his confidence was based not on scheming his way out from under Haman or against Ahasuerus, which is, by the way, describes very gullibly. He never even hears about who, what people that Haman has talked about. He seems like a guy more interested in drinking than actually being a king. But Mordecai, despite all that, doesn't try to elbow Ahasuerus out of the way or even Haman. He just puts himself in repentance in a, in a humble, embarrassing public posture of saying before God and his people and the whole world, the Lord is my only hope. He alone can rescue me from this. Sometimes God is very silent and so we try to read the tea leaves and guess at his plans and all that. We shouldn't do that. Just recognize that God's in charge of circumstances and you're just supposed to be faithful in those circumstances. When God closes a door, be okay with that. When he opens it, go through it if it's in alignment with God's scriptures, right? Sometimes we second guess these things. I want to end by telling a story and I ask the gentleman's permission. I, he was sharing this Thursday night at the men's gathering, and he was uh, just one of, he's, he's as ordinary a mid-level bureaucrat as, as Mordecai is. <laughs> I'm sorry if I offended you, brother, if you're here uh, calling you a bureaucrat. I know you're not, <laughs> but you get the point. <laughs> here he is. He's just driving home every day, and he's noticed a pattern over a number of months. There's, it seems like about every time he comes home, there's a gentleman in, the, in a cemetery near where he, he drives home. He's about 30 years old, and he's seen him time and time and time again, and, and you know how it is. Sometimes you don't think much about it, but then it seems like sometimes the Lord, by his spirit, we think, gets our attention. And God does that sometimes. I think Mordecai, by the spirit, somehow was paying attention to God and his word, and this guy began to pay attention and th think to himself, well, maybe I'm supposed to do something about that. And I, I, I love what he had to say on Thursday because he said he had resolved finally to do something, to stop and talk to him. And sure enough, that day he wasn't there. <laughs> We've all been there. We're finally going to obey. Okay, finally. And then the opportunity to obey is suddenly pulled out from under us. Right? Well, nonetheless, uh, he said that he resolved if he ever was there again that he wouldn't chicken out. And uh, sure enough, the next day or so, he was there. And so he stopped on his way home and walked up behind the gentleman and said, hey, how are you? What's going on? Anything, um, are you struggling in any way, basically, is what he was saying. Is everything okay? And the young man, who's about 30 years old, had his phone there. And he said, uh, well, a few months ago, my five-year-old son died of cancer. And um, I'm here every day. And uh, he was, I guess, probably playing some videos on, on Netflix or something, one of those videos that his little son might have enjoyed. And this dear brother said to him, well, you know, if you've been there, you're not always sure what to say. What can you say to such a person at such a moment and not be kind of intruding, interrupting their grief? But the brother said, well, you know what? I, I go to a church. It's Oak Grove Church. And uh, we're a church that prays. There's a couple groups that pray, men that pray. We would love to, if you would be willing that we could pray for you. And the guy said, thank you. That's, that'd be good. I don't know much about that about prayer. When you think about the circumstances of life and you try to judge and estimate what God might do and what he's calling you to, let me invite you like my brother who did this week 
to factor God into the equation. Could it be that this dear father who didn't know anything about Jesus, so disoriented by grief that he thought playing a YouTube video or something to his graveside of his little son would somehow connect him to him. He, he literally is that disoriented. Could it be that the God who saves sinners would also save this man? Could it be that if God would rescue me, he could rescue him too? Could it be that just as someone once spoke to me a kind word or a gesture ministered to me in that moment, that I now by the power of the Spirit with the word, the same Savior being on his throne today as he was yesterday, that he would use me in that man's life? My point is this. When God opens a door, dear beloved Christian, follow him through it. <laughs> Mordecai factored the Lord into the equation and circumstances of his life, and God is about to do a deliverance that is meant to knock your socks off. I don't know the story of this father, whether he will come to know such a great shepherd as I know, but I can tell you this, Jesus is the answer. <laughs> now, I know some of you who were here last night, you're thinking, man, this guy is a broken record. It's always about Jesus at the end. The thing of it is, I am broken. And I can tell you this, the reason I keep bringing Jesus up is every time I'm broken, he's the answer. It don't matter what it is. The loss of a child, cancer yourself, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the answer. And to me, it is one of the worst things if you have the answer, if you know the answer and you do not share him. Share him. He is the answer. For everyone that you know, and everyone who's broken. Lord in heaven, we come to you now, and we will speak up when you ask us to. But we also know, as many of us have tried over and over again with certain individuals, that the chances of success, humanly speaking, are basically nil. But you, O oh Lord, have access to the human heart. Please, Lord, there are those in our community who are so broken that they only know how to wear a mask anymore. Would you give us grace to pay attention and to see that? And would you give us the words that would pierce the mask, that their grief, their sorrow, their sin, they would rush to the cross, and that they would say, I need Jesus too. Help us as we pass out tracts or little booklets like the four emotions of Christmas or as we talk about Jesus or at least factor him into the equation of our Thanksgiving meals and family gatherings this coming season that, Lord, you might be central to all that we do and say. And would you give us the privilege of finally seeing those we love come to the cross. And give us the grace to remain a broken record in our daily walk. To each of us as Christians, not leave Jesus behind, but to never graduate the gospel. For you are a mighty Savior, and we love you. For you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>